0: So we're good. this is office hours, um, and the whole idea behind this is to give students in an online program a little bit of the experience of being in a face to face program where you can where you can come in and talk to a professor and sit in his office uh, and today, along with Ryan, I have um, a friend and a mentor of mine, Douglas Fleming. So um, Douglas, can you tell us a little bit about your approach to therapy and um, Yeah, start with that. Well, that's
1: very broad. Um, It is pretty broad. (laughs) I, let's see. So I'm influenced by uh, ideas about hypnosis and I'm influenced by ideas about uh, mind, Bateson's notions of mind and those two. There's a confluence there. Stir in some ideas about
2: Taoism, uh, add a sprinkle of meditation, sensibility,
0: and there you have it. Yeah. I think one of the things that first drew me to your uh, approach was it was brief. um, And I felt like it helped people to really um, see a change. When I was first being taught about the, the field of family therapy, it was kind of set into two camps. You know, the, the growth camp, which was nebulous and exciting, but you never really knew when you were done or if you were doing it right. And then you have the like brief camp, which was problem-focused um, or solution-focused, but you were looking for a measurable, obtainable sort of goal. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I like to be oriented by the client um,
1: to figuring out where we're headed, which is not to say that then I give that function over entirely to the client because they might want something that's um, not attainable or that their efforts to achieve it will undermine what they're hoping to happen. So it becomes figured out together yeah, yeah. but certainly there, there's a, a place that we're headed that we're figuring out that um, that organizing is what we're doing within the session and and that's
0: pretty consistent for beef therapists in general
2: yeah
0: yeah um, one of the things that I ran into and I don't know if you've experienced this as well Ryan. Maybe maybe not. I don't know. Is that whenever I bring up the word hypnosis, people typically lose their minds. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like, yeah. They're so afraid yeah. that you're gonna control their minds that they just lose it so that no one can have it. You know what I mean? Just,
3: well mm-hmm. and and uh even more so than that, it immediately my mind jumped to like other professionals' responses to it. So like other therapists and what they've heard but maybe don't understand or the you know swinging stop uh pocket watch type stuff that they have in their head that kind of stuff um that somehow is like still hanging out with like other therapists in their head as like that's what it is Um, and that's where my mind jumps automatically
1: Sure, well there's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, and it's certainly not just with the public, with therapists uh, as well. And then there's many people that do hypnosis in ways that I would find distinctly disturbing. So when I have a client that says my pastor has warned me against hypnosis, I typically say, well, if your pastor has in mind what I'm thinking He or she has in mind when saying that, then I agree. But I don't do that. So I don't hypnotize people. It has nothing to do with control. The whole notion of control is problematic at the very core of the assumptions. And so, yeah, a lot of what happens at the beginning of a session, or if I'm giving conference presentations or something, is I'm. disabusing people of their misconceptions and establishing uh, a comfortable definition and understanding that makes it possible to proceed without feeling like it's dangerous.
0: Does that, when I have said something like that to another person, yeah, I don't usually do that. Um, I will sometimes get a, a nod, but the feeling that I'm getting from them, the look in their face usually doesn't change after I say something along those lines, right?
2: Mm.
0: Um, cause then I'll say like, I mean, you know, would you be interested in trying something different? And they'll go. Mm. <laughs> so, um,
3: well, cause, cause that's exact. They've still got you in like trickster box in their head. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so I don't talk about hypnosis at all anymore. Um, But I guess I was wondering for like you, like how do you handle that, or do people in Florida just go, "Oh, okay, it's something different," and they just go with with that?
1: Well, so a lot of people that come to me come with the expectation (coughs) of hypnosis. They've they've uh, been referred to me because uh, they know that I do it. So there are those people are already in a place where they're saying what we've tried before hasn't been helpful and we're up for it. Uh, If it's a situation where I'm initiating the idea, then it's different, right? So uh, if you're saying to people, have you ever thought about using hypnosis and they haven't, then then you're the the one that's um, bringing it onto their screen of awareness that's a, that's a different process than what I'm
2: usually experiencing. Yeah. It's a good. um, If if I'm
1: introducing the idea of it, I I may not describe it as hypnosis. I, I might just say, when you have a mind body connection that is working for you, it's a great
0: environment for learning. Yeah, mm. so I've actually just started talking about relaxation training, and of course, part of that isn't just relaxation. So that's the increase of tension. But I'm using, in my mind, a lot of the same. I'm using the exact same thinking
2: Sure.
0: for people that seems. The people that I work with that seems to work a lot better. yeah
1: that that can be helpful it certainly sounds less scary the difficulty some people fall into with that is they're doing hypnosis uh, that's called relaxation and the person that they're working with isn't feeling all that relaxed And, and if so if it's construed as contextualized as relaxation um What I don't do is set out relaxation as a goal. Yeah. Um, So if it happens along the way, that's cool. That's very common, but I've had too many people say, well, I I can't be relaxed enough to do it. And I want to make it possible for anybody to
0: experience it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing to keep in mind. I haven't had that problem. Um, and the last two clients that i've worked with um what we did for the first session was to increase they couldn't relax for whatever reason so we increased the um, symptom and then went back down to where they felt like baseline was Um, and that shift was not difficult even though we talked about relaxation training or relaxation practice Mm. they were still able to, and I think some of that was because I was validating their experience along the way. Yeah, of course, but it's just strange to try to relax in this artificial sort of place. So what do you notice? I just feel like it's really awkward. Yeah. Well, how could it be more awkward if there was a pretty girl behind you? Would that make you more awkward? And then, and then we're in it. Mm-hmm. Cause then they have this automatic experience, you know, of increased tension, which we talk about in partnership to you know less tension and so we're we go right right you know right from there but but i think that you're talking about something that is very important to keep on the forefront of how am i framing this how are we framing um this and how might that constrain what then is available to the to the patient to the to the client
1: Uh, yeah contextualization is everything
0: yeah I felt
3: like you were in the middle
0: of a of a thought Ryan.
3: Um I'm more interested uh in hearing what you might have to say about goal setting. Um because I I liked the way that you put it earlier and I think it kind of put some words to some things that I was having some trouble uh figuring out because sometimes the client does come in with a goal that is maybe outside of what they can do, like because of whatever limiting factors there might be, or they're coming in with contradictory goals. That's one that I see quite a bit. So I'm I'm just curious if, uh, if you could to just kind of, go on some goal-setting stuff. How do you approach that, your considerations?
2: What I hear
1: in the requests that clients make very, very often is a desire for some problematic chunk of experience to be able to be eradicated or controlled or at least contained. And so they're asking me, uh, or saying, "I I want to not have panic attacks. I don't want to feel anxiety anymore. I want to get this pain to go away. Um, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to stop these thoughts. They're driving me crazy."
2: And my sensitivity is is that.
1: Anybody that orients themselves to any of those goals
2: is basically um, setting themselves up to fail um, within a context of,
1: um, I don't think it's too strong to say violence. That is, here's a chunk of my experience and I'm going to be better when I can destroy that chunk of, of me. And so that requires me to discount my anxiety, discount my anger, discount my uh, troubling thoughts, and not only discount them, but then try to destroy them. And that puts you at odds with your own experience with yourself. And I don't want to go there. So, the overarching assumption that I make is that. A therapeutic change is always going to be organized around some kind of connection. That we jump for a second to the metaphor of healing, which, if you want to talk about it later, we can. I, I have a lot of concerns around it because it can bring you into medical model thinking, and that's definitely problematic. But but the root of the word healing is whole, and and that I like, and so if you're going to create some kind of solution to a problem that has uh, some form of wholeness to it, you don't get there by dividing up experience and then um, setting up a war. So, somebody says, I wanna control my anxiety, I'm very interested in horror, anger, whatever, to what degree has what you're calling anxiety, or fearing or something, to what degree has it been working to keep you safe? And of course it's causing you lots of distress, um, but the evolution of our bodies has been to offer a, a way of um, maintaining safety, that includes non volitional body responses in dangerous or threatening situations. So rather than uh, orient to doing violence to some problematic chunk of experience, I'm uh, always organizing myself using hypnosis, doesn't have to be hypnosis, but certainly the logic of hypnosis to alter to help alter the person's relationship to it, so they're not organized around trying to control it or eradicate it, but they're they're orienting to it as a source of um, learning something they can learn from. That there's a an essential integrity to it, so that they they alter their relationship to what they think they need in order to be okay. Somebody's. Um, you know, Suffering a lot, then they think that the achievement of being okay is the absence of suffering, or the absence of, say, making a problematic choice. They continue to choose to drink or to smoke or to throw up after binging or something. And uh, if you take a, a non-eradication, non-control Based approach to therapeutic change, then rather than stopping something, what you're looking at is increasing choices so that the, the thing that's been most alluring up till now is not the only option, and it becomes less and less the alluring option. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a woman that I was seeing today, um, and she has uh had a problem with with fury with being in uh, interactions with people that uh, she loves that she threatens them to such an extent that they're afraid for their well-being and that scares her as well. so she's saying um i want to stop and she's grown up she grew up in a setting of violence and she's currently in a situation that has elements of domestic abuse. And so she's obviously wanting to get out of it. And my initial assumption is, well, anger is a very important way of staying safe in a dangerous situation. Because if I can get angry enough at you, then I can keep you at bay, and that could help save my life. So rather than set up to let me uh, find a world where I don't get angry, I would prefer to think of it as, let me um, find a way to make it possible so that anger is available to me when necessary, but that I've got other opportunities that don't require it. Then if you're not trying to stop it, but you're uh, extending your curiosity to other possibilities, it just doesn't have to grab you by the throat. Mm. Literally. (laughs) And the other person is less likely to grab you by the throat if you're not having to resort to anger as a way to keep safe. Because, of course, if I get angry at you to to discount you, to take you down so that you're safe in my presence, that's going to piss you off. And so we're going to escalate. If I have another way of responding to your provocations that don't escalate you, then we both get safer.
0: A lot of what you talk about reminds me of, um, I was listening today to a podcast with Jack Cornfield, who I think you are familiar with. Yes,
1: sir uh-huh. you know. And
0: he was talking about- oh, I don't know him personally, but I know his work. I yeah. you know his work, yeah. Um, and he was talking about how problems basically occur when we have some part of our experience that we isolate. Yeah, same logic. Yeah, I was like, that's one of the same logic. Yeah. And so part of it, what sounds like the approach is, is to pull those things into relationship and then to make sense of them in relationship.
1: Well, so the thing is, they're they're always in relationship. It's only, it's it's a delusion to think that if you can isolate it, then you're out of relationship to it. If I can effectively destroy it, then I'm free. But what you then have is a if you were successful, which you wouldn't be, but if you were, you'd have a relationship to something that's no longer there.
2: Which you're
0: the definition you're act- haunted. <laughs> you're right. Yeah,
2: exactly. The presence exactly. of absence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, the presence of
1: absence. So, so if you recognize there's always relationship, you might as well engage in such a way that the relationship is comfortable.
2: So a few weeks ago, seeing a a kid who is afraid of being robbed and uh,
1: it's limited his ability to fall asleep. He used to be able to fall asleep by himself. He hasn't for the last uh, year or so been able to fall asleep by himself. Uh, His parents will lie down with him if they start to get up he wakes up so he's always heightened uh, nervousness so they end up spending a few hours every night with him um, and only finally getting up when he's so deeply asleep that he doesn't get uh awake when they're getting up so that's uh, disrupted obviously the parents uh, lifestyle and so on and uh Hey, parents have done a beautiful job of trying all sorts of different things, but it's all been around um, eradication. So I had, um, uh, I discovered that he's a math, a mathematics whiz, really bright, lovely kid. And I was asking him uh, what he likes about math, and he likes solving problems. And I was asking him about uh, what he would do if he had to multiply two large numbers together. And he said, well, I'd, I'd take at least one of the numbers and I'd divide it in some way. So if it was 18, I'd divide it into eight and 10, and then I'd multiply each of those smaller numbers by the other number, and then I'd add those together. I said, oh, okay, so as a mathematician, what you'd know is that you take a complex problem and you divide it in half, and if
2: you've divided it in half,
1: it's easier to solve. Yes. Oh, cool. Do you like to draw? Oh yeah. Paint? Oh yeah. So um, then I gave him an assignment to uh, draw the robbers that he was afraid were going to break in. Um, So one day he would draw, not draw them, paint them. And then the next day I asked him if he would paint just the bottom half of them, just their legs. And then the next day paint just the top part of them. next day, just paint the right side of the original painting. The next day, paint just the left side. Because each of those takes a complex problem, divides it in some way. If you divide it, you use math logic, you can solve it easier. The next year, I wasn't going to see him for a few weeks. So the next week, I asked him if he would do a similar thing, but I wanted him to paint each of the robbers uh, when they were 10 years old. He's nine years old. Paint them when they were 10 and recognize that at 10, you know, one of them's probably a troublemaker, but another one's a class clown, no doubt. And there may be other personality idiosyncrasies, i I'd probably didn't use that word, I might have because he's a bright kid, uh, that, that you might bring forth in these paintings, but, but convey them as they look um, at that age, and are you aware that of course if somebody's breaking into your house, you know, that's scary for you, but do you realize how afraid they are? Because they're afraid of getting caught. So when you're painting these pictures, when their faces are in there, I want you to paint the fear on their faces. And then when they're 10, I'd like you to paint what do they look like at 10 when they're afraid?
2: But if somebody's having a, a good time, then you can paint the humor on their face. So he comes back. Uh, three
1: weeks later and he's a whole, his parents are wonderful, a whole sheaf of paintings. And he's followed all of my instructions. And I asked him, so, so what are the names of the robbers? These guys, are, as adults gave me their names. And they said, so when they were 10, what their moms call.
2: Them? Um, so we established what their mothers called them at 10. He um, started sleeping through the night,
1: falling asleep, sleeping through the night, started not being afraid.
2: And we're not doing anything to eradicate control fear. We're teasing it apart. And we're uh,
1: being able to solve a complex problem by
2: simplifying
1: it. And of course, one way to to cut in half a problem is to look at that problem when it's half the age
2: that it is now. Right. When you you
0: work with people, how do you know that they're ready for that sort of um, experiment? I think most of my students, they ask they ask that question, but they don't know that they're asking it. They're they ask what question? They, they ask the question of, um, how do I know what to do? Because if they were to go and try something similar or what they thought was similar, they would come back and say something like, I tried it and it didn't work because they said, sure. oh, I don't want to paint or something sure. other and i mean to me what i do in those moments is i just wait until it's glaringly obvious so i don't have a secret um i don't i don't have a secret key right but i the the idea that i use is i'm waiting for for my my pitch you know if you're at the plate playing baseball and if you're actually in a game, you only have what three strikes. But in therapy, you know, if you're open to it, you're getting strike. You know, ball up. You're getting pitch after pitch, and eventually, one of those is one that um, I know I can hit. It just seems like it's right in my in my in my
2: mm-hmm.
0: in my zone. But for you, how do you know um, when is the time to swing? When it, oh, this is the they are engaged. We're and and a place in our relationship for me to offer this idea. Idea or whatever. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, the hard that. part to convey, I think, to to students.
1: Two answers. Um, first, a comment. I think you're more patient than I am. <laughs> I probably am. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to wait uh, around until I sense they're ready. I'm from the get-go. Laying the groundwork for them to discover that they're ready. Yeah. So I'm proactively contributing to that. When I ask this young man, what's your favorite topic? What's your favorite subject at school? It has the benefit of, you know, it's joining in a traditional family therapy notion. We're chatting about something that's not the problem. But I, I don't do it for that reason. I want to hear how he thinks, what he likes, and when he describes the subjects that he does, I'm going to figure out how to make use of those to frame what I'm going to suggest for him so that it's just, of course, he would be able to do that because this is something that he's already could have. So I'm, I'm listening for that. Not just listening for it. I'm asking questions to generate it to give me the information I need to move in that direction. And then I I don't ask questions that um, that a person can slap away or can discount. So I would never say to him, um, so I have an experiment I'd like you to do. I want would like you to, to paint some pictures for me. Hey, do you like to paint? I would never do that. <laughs> earlier in the conversation i would say okay so you're good at True, cool um do you do any music no. are you sports you do sports oh you do sports okay what sports are you good at what do you like what who are you on the team are you the captain what are, and i'm asking all these seemingly meaningless or just joining questions but i'm listening for how does he conceive of himself? What's he, how does he engage in whatever he does? Um, and then along the way, I, I had this idea in mind. So along the way, I said, um, "So do you like math and you like sports. Do you do you like art too?" "Oh yeah, I love art." "Oh, what did you? What's your favorite thing to do?" "Oh, uh, you know, I like drawing. Drawing. Do you ever paint?" "Oh yeah. Do you have any paints at home?" Oh yeah. Okay. Then I drop it, and it's ten or fifteen minutes later when I say I have an experiment for you. Um, I already know that he's going to be up for doing it because he's told me. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Told you exactly what's up his alley. So that's right. Like why? Why would I turn this down? I was going to be painting anyway. I like,
1: paint. or maybe wouldn't be painting anyway. But it's not something that I. It's something that I like. The second answer to your question is I think students end up saying, Yeah, I tried, it didn't work, is because they think of it in terms of it being a technique. And I don't do anything (laughs) as a technique. Nothing about what I just said, the stories that I just told you about seeing clients, if you conceive of it as so here's a um, a disembodied action that you can take, you're basically um, taking a, a CBT approach, not not the actual intervention, but but the notion that you can divide up a therapeutic approach into isolatable bits, and if you string them together, you have what's called therapy. Um, we in family therapy do something just about as um, as problematic in that we isolate techniques and attempt to implement them, thinking that the magic is in oh, it's the miracle question. And you have to figure out how, how many minutes do you wait before you ask the miracle question? And and then you see naive therapists just thinking that it's the miracle question, which is the miracle. And and then when it doesn't work, they want to throw out solution-focused therapy because that doesn't work. But the problem is instituting anything as, as a technique that's not tied with an orientation and a logic. So much more important than any particular suggestion for somebody to try or any particular thing to do, say in a hypnotic trance, is a really developed um, sensibility about how does change happen? What is the therapist piece of the action what are you doing why are you doing it if this doesn't work what else could you do how can you be respectful of the person but also their experience oh that's essential then then the particularities of,
2: of ways of putting that into practice could be called technique oh no it into the tapestry of an orientation
0: Well, we got about, um, six minutes left and I wanted to ask you one final question. Um, but before I do that, I want to let Ryan ask any question that he has to ask.
3: Yeah. One of, um, one of the things that I'm coming to appreciate more in as I'm growing as a therapist is I need mentors. And I think that that's something that we need throughout our development. So I'm always curious, who do you consider your mentors? Like who have been the people that kind of shaped you and nudged you certain ways in therapy, things like that?
1: Um, Many years ago, I heard Olga Silverstein who's a therapist at uh, Ackerman. One of the greats. Yeah. She said that when she got stuck with a case, she tended to not go to other people. Um, What she tried to do is figure it out herself. And it wasn't because she thought that she was the be-all and end-all. It was just that other people... um, held assumptions in contrast to hers and that it actually wouldn't be helpful for her to.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's the running theme of like yeah. everything tonight is just the, the, the contextual fit. And yeah. uh, what I hear you saying in that is like, she felt as though she went to other people. They could not give her an idea that would fit contextually with with, with what was going on with her and the client in the room. hmm
2: yeah so uh, what i wouldn't want to do and haven't done is go
1: to um, someone and ask them what to do I, I i rather my orientation is can i um get inspired to approach this conundrum somehow differently. So I, I like reading Buddhists. I like Jack uh, Cornfield. There's a lot of Buddhist writers I like because they're not directly talking about therapy, but the sensibility, the Buddhist sensibility, um, is very much in accord with uh, a therapeutic way of being. They have assumptions that I don't agree with, so it, it's not a, a full embrace. But I I get um inspired by um paying attention to people who really get it. And there's a hell of a lot of Buddhist writers that don't. But there's some really there's some gems. My favorite Shunryu Suzuki. He um his embrace his, his grasp of paradox, um, and, and how that those paradoxes arise. Um Really, really communicated to me that he gets a fundamental grasp of people and change and the benefits of a mind-body connection better than just about anybody. So, so I've
0: been inspired by reading people like him. Is that one book and, of his that you know someone should pick up as a? Oh uh, yeah, sure. Book? Yeah,
1: his his Zen Mind Beginner's Mind is his. Uh, uh, most important, it's 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 a collection of of uh, talks that he gave uh, at his um, Buddhist center, and they're just little beautiful nuggets of uh, of wisdom. And then uh, I've been very much inspired by Erickson. I've been teaching Erickson for almost thirty years, and so I read him a lot, and I. Think through and talk about him a lot. Um, and many things I about him I disagree with. That's an important thing. You know, what you don't want to do if you have a mentor is believe it. Believe him or her. <laughs> you, want, you don't want to become an acolyte. What you want to do is maintain your ability to be um, discerning and to to develop a sensibility, a way of thinking that makes it possible for you to, with curiosity, absorb what they're offering and make sense of it. And if it doesn't make sense, but you still are intrigued, then alter how you're thinking about approaching, uh, making sense of therapy so that you can then bring that into your approach or reject it because it doesn't fit, you, would, you don't agree. So you're always working at the double contextual level. Here's a particular way that you handle this particular situation. I'm not going to hold on to it as a technique. I'm going to look for, I'm going to distill from that a way of approaching thinking about how to alter people's relationships with problems. And in that inspiration, I'm going to bring that with me as I go in search of how to extemporaneously, creatively discover what could be helpful
0: in this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, that was awesome. Thank you. I'll have to have you back on again. Hopefully you'll uh, be, be free sometime soon again in in the future.
1: You and I have been talking for a few years and I always enjoy it. So yeah. uh, invite me and I'll definitely come back.
0: Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to know. All right. Thanks so much, Douglas.
1: You're so welcome, Jordan. Uh, nice thanks See you.